This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We are going to have a very interesting episode related to combat sports with the very expert of the theme. Our guest has done his PhD in Loughborough University. He is working as a principal lecturer in School of Sport and Health Sciences in University of Brighton. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Dr. Alex Channon. Welcome, Alex. Thank you very much, Ollie. Yeah, it's really nice to be here on the podcast. Um, yeah, as you say, I'm, I'm a, a principal lecturer at the University of Brighton. Um, I teach across uh, sports studies, physical education, sport management, sports science. Um, and yeah, so a, a huge interest of mine is in um, uh, yeah, the social scientific research on, uh, on combat sports. So um, excited to have a good conversation with you about that today. Yeah, so I, I think you had the really interesting part where you are an article where you are making distinction between fighting and violence. Could you tell more about that? Absolutely, yes. So this is something that I've been working on for a few years with a colleague of mine, Christopher Matthews, uh, at Nottingham Trent University, uh, also in the UK. Um, we started working on this sort of theme of um, how people who practice martial arts and combat sports think about um, violence as a, as a, you know, as a philosophical theme, as a, as a moral issue, as something that, you know, in, in certain ways shapes their practice. Um, and we started thinking about this uh, while we were doing our PhDs, really. So back in, in uh, you know, 2010, 2011, that, that sort of period of time, when we were finishing our, our PhDs, we wanted to talk about this and we wanted to make this, uh, you know, one of the focuses that we worked on uh, moving forwards. Um, and a few years later, we finally got around to actually doing something on it, which usually happens uh, in academia, uh, sidetracked with other things. Uh, but yeah, we, we settled on this this idea of um, looking at how people who practice uh, combat sports and, and other heavy contact sports, how they think about the idea that what they do is violence. Because if you ask people who, who are not within these subcultures, who don't do these activities, generally the, the public perception of sports like boxing, mixed martial arts, uh, even rugby, uh, is that they're very violent sports. And one of the things that we... Um, that we that we found when we did this uh, or, or made this part of our, our research efforts was that actually a lot of people inside these sports um, they don't share that belief they actually you know challenge it quite strongly you know this this is not violence or I'm not a violent person or you know this isn't real violence so they'd, they'd say these kind of things um, and this crops up in a lot of the research on uh, on combat sports for sure but on other other heavy contact sports as well this kind of uneasiness with the idea that what you're doing when you punch somebody or tackle them or, or collide with them intentionally in sport is violence or is violence in the same way that fighting on the streets is violence. So this is a, an interesting phenomenon. You know, how is it that people can spend, you know, many, many hours of their life punching each other um, in the ring or, you know, learning how to choke each other unconscious on the mats um, and not think that it's violence or insist on this, this difference. So it's an interesting academic question. Um, and it's one that we felt tied in quite nicely with um, perhaps the, the potential for using sport to educate people um, about important moral issues. So to sort of elaborate on that a little bit, if 
in the sports context, we have this this quite strong sense that um, you know what we're doing isn't violence. Then perhaps this gives us a clue as to what violence is, or it gives us a way, or it invites us to think about where violence sort of begins uh, and ends. So this is kind of the the direction that we were moving in with this this research idea. Firstly, trying to explain from a you know sociological point of view how it is that people might think that it isn't violence, and then taking that knowledge and trying to do something positive with it um, in a pedagogical sense to um, you know to encourage reflection and learning about you know where violence begins and ends. So that's kind of where we started with it, and and this led to um, a couple of publications uh, which I think we could probably share with your listeners if if they uh, if they're interested. Um, around how violence is defined in sport. And we wrote one paper that challenged some, uh, at the time, some recent um, empirical studies that we thought had not used the concept of violence particularly well um, and had sort of strayed from from thinking critically about what violence actually is. Um, And as well as that, we wrote a couple of things that were to do with um, the project we developed, which is called Love Fighting, Hate Violence. Uh, As I mentioned, this pedagogical sort of toolkit intervention to try and use this this tacit understanding that athletes have about where violence begins and ends as a way of educating young people around um, you know anti-violence initiative and and uh, particularly the concept of uh, of consent which is really important in the in the way we think about this mm. yeah really really in- interesting and and it's i think it's a lot about consent like if if you look uh, combat sports you can think that they need to be there that they but basically at any point either one of them in a fight can just turn their back and the referee will wave it, wave it off so at any moment they can just get out but they don't want to so i, I think that's usually misunderstood when people are watching that if you want you can get out at the, any any point of a fight Absolutely. And this is really at the heart of the, the theoretical differentiation that we made between fighting and, and violence is in those moments that we're, that we're calling fighting, the, the action um, that we're not classifying as violence, one of the key differentiating points is that both people are there uh, in a consensual way. So this is really important to stress this for, for you know, sometimes I have this discussion and, and people can't quite get past, um, you know, oh, but punching someone is always violent. A punch is always a violent act. Well, if the act involves a violation of the person, if it's an unwanted thing, if it's an imposition of another's will over over my own or over over your own, um, it is experienced very, very differently to when somebody punches somebody else and they actually want to be punched. Um, and this really, my, my first kind of foray into this phenomenon was when I was doing my PhD, looking at uh, gender relations in, uh, in martial arts classes where men and women train together. And one of the big problems that, that sort of arises in, in those situations, um, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, if you've trained with, with women in, in combat sports, is that often there'll be this sort of reluctance from men to engage properly with sparring with women or training with them. Um, and, you know, in some cases that might be appropriate if it's a, you know, a completely new person, you don't want to spar them on the first day and, and, you know, put them off. But if it's someone with a bit of experience, someone who wants to be pushed, someone who's getting ready for a, for a match, you know, you need to, to have a physical exchange to properly develop skills. Um, you need to be punched. Um, equally in a competitive encounter, um, if one person just sits down in the ring and, and doesn't, you know, actually try to, to resist and, and um, overcome the other, then the, the competition is sort of evacuated of all of its meaning. It doesn't, it doesn't count as a proper fight. So 
and, and these kind of stories were being reported to me by, by women that I was interviewing and some men as well, you know, that they, they found it very difficult to because of the impact of, you know, gender socialization and, and so on. And um, so in this context, you know, if we take gender out of it again, in this context, people actually want to be hit. It's an important thing. It's an important part of the experience. Um, and so by not hitting somebody, in fact, you kind of violate the, the purposes of them being there. And, you know, you're, you're sending them a message that you don't quite belong or I don't take you or this seriously. So, again, for people who haven't actually done this, who haven't tried to, um, you know, to put themselves in these situations, this might be quite a strange thing to understand that somebody actually wants to be punched. Um, but there you go. You know, that's what social research is for. You know, we, we go and we lift the lid on these strange and peculiar worlds. Um, but yes, sorry to circle back. This was about consent, isn't it? So really, consent is is the key thing here in in the the boxing uh, ring, the MMA uh, cage, the judo mats. You know, we want our, our partners to try to do these things to us. Otherwise, the sport has no meaning. Outside of those contexts, you know, on the streets, in in a bar, or in a, in a domestic violence situation, somebody's punching or throwing or choking somebody else that doesn't want it. It might very well be the exact same action that's taking place the same punch delivered with the same force to the same body part, but it's understood and experienced completely differently when there isn't consent. And that really is what the love fighting hate violence distinction is about, is that one of these things is something that we can find a lot of positive meaning in fighting. And the other uh, violence is something that is, you know, it's destructive, it's negative, and, and we want to challenge that. So um, yeah, that's really where we were headed with this, uh, this sort of distinction between the two concepts, translating that into um, something we can use to teach young people about yeah about consent and how it feels yeah yeah and in- interesting that you said that there needs to be something needs to be violated and i guess the violence words comes from there and i'm from finland and in finnish actually violence is two words and it's kind of people and power are combined so it's kind of using power to control people in in a way, and I, I think it also gives gives something about the word violence because I think there's a power relationship that the other one has in a violence, kind of more power, and I are using it against someone who has less power in in a sense. What what do you think about the power relationship? Absolutely, yes, and and this is where I think the discussion around violence can get you know a lot more sophisticated and can lead us into a lot of you know a much wider. Um, sort of area of reflection on on how uh, force, whether it's physical force, economic force, symbolic influence, and, and lots of different ways in which we can um, sort of impose our will on others in ways that might harm them or, or damage them. Um, the initial paper that Christopher and I wrote um, is a theoretical piece published in the journal Sport in Society. Uh, we we settled on this this important distinction, this important uh, sort of two part way of thinking about violence. One being violence as force where we only think about the, the you know the sort of manifestation of power you know the direct um obviously harmful often um consequences of either physically overpowering somebody or you know forcing them to do something against their will in some other way um you know that that, that violence as force definition looking very much at the the objective actions of, of the manifestation of that power on the other hand violence as violation looking at the subjective experience of you know being part of this um, this human relationship, which is characterized, you know, in this case by an uneven power relation. If we think about the the fairly um, simplistic example, but the, the punch in the boxing ring is, is delivered between two equals, you know, who meet on common ground within a, 
consensual framework, as you say, one one of them can opt out at any time. You know, that's that's part of the norms of that. The relationship that exists between those people is not one that's defined by a sharp power differential. Meanwhile, the same punch thrown, perhaps even between the same people um, in, in an argument outside is about one of those people deciding to no longer respect uh, the other's boundaries and to force them to, to um, you know, to submit to their will. So yes, absolutely, power is part of this. And that also kind of opens up the door to think, well, just because we're saying that, that fighting isn't necessarily violence, that doesn't mean that the things that happen in sport, the you know, the, the, the action in contact sports is never violent. In fact, it can very well be violent. If we think about, you know, coaches pushing athletes too far, um, you know, if we think about perhaps um, people being um, perhaps economically coerced, you know, people who, who, are, who are only taking part in sport because there's a financial gain, but they really don't want to be there. You know, we could perhaps characterize that as a form of violence, you know. So, and there's lots of different avenues we can take that particularly thinking about violence in, in a more sociological sense, that it's not just about the objective action of one person punching another. There's a lot more going on in the background. Um, and absolutely, power is, uh, is part of that. Hmm. And, and maybe, maybe many people don't understand who are outsiders that, for example, athletic commissions, they don't allow to have fight between two who are not close enough in skills and in weight. So basically, it's kind of illegal to even have a have a fight if, if the discrepancy is too big. Yes, and that that is an interesting one because, and I think we'll come back to this when we talk about the um, the more recent study that I've done a bit later in in the um, in the podcast um, with respect to some contexts where athletic commissions don't actually operate, um, and some of the the things that can happen then, which um, yeah leads to a lot of problems. Uh, but yes, as well as the the interpersonal consent between two athletes, you also have a wider structure that oversees this, or at least you should do. You know, in, in a well developed um, you know sports infrastructure context, where um, there are uh, sort of standardized um, and, and widely agreed upon principles that that regulate these things and say, look, David can't consent to fight Goliath, right? We we have to step in on his on his behalf here. That we, you know, you might have all the guts in the world, but actually, we, you know, it maybe is a little bit paternalistic. But um, and, and digressing slightly here, I think perhaps some fighters need that that kind of thing. They're they're too brave for their own good, sort of thing. They need that kind of regulation around it um, to prevent uh, perhaps some of the the um, yeah those mismatches that you mentioned from taking place. So yes, interpersonal consent is very important. Uh, but it's not the be all and end all. There are other things that are in place to uh, to protect us, um, which you know, in an ideal world, should function effectively to yeah to mitigate against those kinds of um, you know dangerous mismatches in sport. For most sedentary behaviour and physical activity researchers, collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project, especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time causes unnecessary stress and hassle, and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data, introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting-edge, next-generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data, a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. 
Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant, and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw 3-axis accelerometer data. Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is s-e-n-s.fibian.com. Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. And, and if we then talk about a little bit about amateur full contact combat sports, because it's interesting, people do not make a living, usually don't get paid at all. Why do people take, take these kind of risks, which can be really big risks for nothing, basically? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, and having spent a fair bit of time around the amateur MMA scene um, a couple of years ago when I was, I was doing the work that we, we've, um, we're discussing later, um, you know, I got to spend a bit of time with some of the athletes and their coaches, uh, some of the referees as well, really important figures in this field. Um, and hardly anyone is, is making money here. You know, the referees are being paid for, for the evening's work they do, but they're not being paid mega bucks, you know, and, unless they're working on a big, big international shows, it's not, they have to have a second, you know, they have, they have to have a job. The refereeing is not their, their main income. Um, coaches as well, they, they make money from, you know, running their gyms, but it's not, you know, they're not celebrity athlete, you know, big, big earners. And of course, as you say, the athletes themselves, you know, they're lucky if they're paid their travel expenses, even, you know, fighting at the lower level of professional um, combat sports, uh, certainly with mixed martial arts in the UK, um, there is very little money outside of the very top end of the sport. So yes, there must be something else that drives this, you know, um, and I think, you know, we need to look at uh, we need to look into sports psychology for this. We need to look at things, you know, motivational theories around. Um, you know, what, what I'm mostly familiar with in sociology is thinking about um, identity construction and being able to be part of a community through uh, walking through the fire that you're that you and your friends sort of walk through together, and using mixed martial arts or using boxing or, or whatever um, discipline we're we're competing in as a way to gain the kind of experience that helps you to build a positive identity and confirm a, a positive identity for yourself. So I wrote a paper about this a couple of years ago um, in the Martial Arts Studies Journal uh, using the concept of edge work, this idea that uh, by taking extreme risks, calculated risks and, and controlled risks, but still very, very, um, very extreme and dangerous risks, uh, people are able to gain a kind of experience which tells them something very profound about who they truly are. Uh, it allows you to um, to kind of place yourself in a situation that most people will never experience, a situation that most people think of perhaps as being um, extraordinarily dangerous and uncontrollable and seeing, you know, do I have what it takes to survive when, you know, when I'm cast into the fire, you know, when I'm, when I'm, having to rely on myself to get myself through this, this situation. And there's plenty of sports that provide us with examples of this kind of action. Um, and I argued in this paper that mixed martial arts is one of them. That, you know, we, we enter into this position where, you know, we're inside a cage and the door closes and it's just me and my opponent. Yes, the referee's there as well, but you know, try not to be involved. And it's, it's just us in this moment where, um, and this is confirmed in a lot of the research on the sport, it's very authentic. You know, it's very, very much uh, brings me close to the truth about myself, about my skills, about my abilities. There's nowhere to hide. Um, you know, and I, I get to learn about myself in quite profound ways in these environments. 
Um, and that's an experience that, you know, is very hard to come by in contemporary society and, and even in most sports as well, where there's a lot more control. There's, you know, you perhaps have an opportunity to uh, to hide behind teammates and so on. Not so in sports like boxing, mixed martial arts. It's very, very sort of raw. Um, and I think that goes at least some way in explaining why do people do this? Because it gives you an experience like no other. Um, incredibly sort of affirming, positive, self-actualizing experience, um, you know, a massive emotional high um, and other things as well. So, uh, yeah, that's how I would answer that question. I'm sure there are other answers as well, but, yeah, that's that's how I would um, address it. Yeah, I, I think that's really, really interesting and really resonates with my personal experiences. I have had maybe 20, 20 full contact fights in, in different different martial arts, and I, I think it's amazing also like the kind of defense side which usually don't get much attention that you have an opponent who have maybe practiced decades punches and kicks and if you can be there being calm even if you are in a tight spot I think that's something quite amazing feeling that you are in probably the tightest thing in your life it's it's really 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 bad spot to be and you are still concentrated calm and you can control yourself and and defend and i I think that's often did you get any this side in your your studies yeah absolutely and this is basically the the core of the edge work concept is the idea that you you deliberately place yourself in tremendous risk in order to test if you can do this you know and and that's the that affirmation that you have got what it takes to survive and to keep your cool and to stay, um, you know, to stay in the moment when everything around you seems to be chaotic and threatening and, and out to destroy you, you can stay calm, you can stay focused, and you can do what you know needs to be done to to get yourself through. Um, this, as I say, this this is a concept that's been used in a lot of sports contexts. It's been look, used to look at mountaineering and base jumping and uh, free solo climbing and all these very uh, you know dangerous, um, pretty extreme kind of sports environments. And I think it applies absolutely to the kinds of things that mixed martial arts fighters and, and yeah other combat athletes as well say about it. Um, I haven't competed in a long time in, in martial arts, but I, I do train in, in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, and one of the things that's resonated with me. Um, very much so is is this sense of you know when someone's you know someone who's much bigger than you and better than you is sitting on top of you and you can't breathe and they've got your arm you know you know you're you're surely moments from having your arm uh, wrenched to be able to keep your calm and not panic you know and and, and be able to um, to know that this isn't going to kill me and as it's uncomfortable but I'm I'm okay um, it's one of the most sort of profound experiences I think to to know that you can survive these kinds of encounters. Um, and and keep your mind, um, you know, keep yourself focused and keep yourself protected. Uh, yeah, it's very powerful, I think. And that, I, yeah, definitely goes a long way to explaining um, why people put themselves at risk. Mm, yeah, I, I've heard the phrase being comfortable, being uncomfortable. And and I, I think that's an important skill that many people are lacking. And I, I think it comes really with, the, for example, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that when you are choked, you actually need to relax because... It's not good to tense your throat. It, it makes it even harder. So you need to relax and just be okay with the feeling. And then if you think some people, they are really annoyed if their nose is a little bit blocked, like, or, or some small things. <laughs> so I, I think it I think it helps in everyday life that you are like, this is pretty easy. Nobody is 
<laughs> trying to strangle me. So, yeah. I, I remember when I first started training jujitsu, actually, after about three months, I, I had to go to the dentist to have a lot of work done. <laughs> I was in the dentist chair for about 50 minutes, having all kinds of things uh, fixed in my mouth. And I kept saying to myself, you know, don't tap to pressure <laughs> to, to get me through it. So I completely relate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really nice. And, and then also like, I, I don't know if you came up with this kind of thing, but for example, for me, after a fight, I actually feel a lot of maybe friendship with my opponent. Usually the relationship is special afterwards. Like, did you did you have any any of these things? Uh, again, absolutely. And this um, again, it comes through in the paper that I wrote on on edge work. That one of the um, one of the defining features of this this concept as well is that edge workers tend to recognize and and respect that behavior in each other. So you know, there's there's other explanations, of course, for why we feel camaraderie with the the people that we spar with or, or we train with or, or fight against. Um, but this in particular, um, I often hear this phrase, you know. I, I respect anyone with the guts to step in the cage or to step in the ring. You know, anyone that can get in there and face down those those demons and walk through that fire. Um, I know how hard that is, so I respect anyone who who can do that. There's this kind of sense of communitas, this, this shared, um, exclusive and shared experience that that goes on in these kinds of sports. That when we recognise that in other people, um, you know, there is all, already kind of that mutuality and that bond. That ah, yes, you. I, I know that you've you've obviously got the right kind of character um, that I value because, you know, you've walked through that fire that I have. And equally, there's another um, aspect of this that's unique, I think, to combat sports when it comes to edge work is if we see the experience of being at risk in sport as valuable. So I want to learn about myself. I want to gain these fantastic emotions. I want this incredible experience. I want to build this identity, be part of this community and so on. If I'm doing that in base jumping, um, I need something tall and I need, you know, a parachute. <laughs> or if I'm doing it in mountaineering, I need some climbing boots and, and a mountain range. If I'm doing it in MMA, I need an opponent, right? I, I can't walk down that, that risky path. I can't sort of work the edge, so to speak, um, without an opponent genuinely trying to beat me. So I need someone to enable me to experience those emotions. And likewise, I will also do the same for my, uh, my, my opponent. So even though... When we meet in the ring or in the cage, we are trying to overcome each other and we are, you know, for all intents and purposes, we are hostile towards each other in, in the context of the sport. Actually, if we step outside of the sport and look at this as a social phenomenon, we're actually working together. We're actually partners, right, in, in creating and producing this, this powerful feeling of, um, you know, this emotional high, this connection with significant um, experience that we're both after. So we need each other and we've provided a service to each other. Now, of course, that's not always going to be the case. Not every fight is going to go that way and not every fight is going to have those meanings. Um, and sometimes people might genuinely hate each other uh, or, or just simply not be doing it for those reasons. You know, you're, you're doing it to earn money or or for any um, number of other reasons. But when that is the motivation, and I think from what I've seen, from what I've experienced, it tends to be quite a strong one for a lot of people then actually our opponent, you know, there's, there's every reason that we would want to hug our opponent afterwards because they've just helped us to have something that we've, you know, that we've been really excited to have. So, yeah, that's how I would explain that. Mm, yeah. Uh, when, when you were explaining that, I, I thought uh, there's an episode Nora has done with Adventurous Learning, uh, episode with Dr. Simon Beams. 
and I think it a little bit relates to this that you learn in in the edge moment, in the risky moment, and I think adventures are a little bit similar to to this one. Absolutely, yeah. Um, as I say, that the, the way that I've been thinking about this, the concepts I've used have been used extensively in in that context as well, um, and it, yeah, it, it fits quite nicely. I think I'm, I'm quite pleased with the um, with the use of that concept. And and then if we move to your more recent work with the MMA, could you could you tell tell more about your new studies? Sure. So um, over the last couple of years, I've been um, writing up and publishing the study that I did uh, with again with Christopher Matthews and uh, another chap called Matthew Hillier. Um, Matty Hillier, he, he's also a fighter himself. He, he's fought um, in MMA for for quite a few years. So Matty joined us on the research team for that. It was a great help. Um, so yeah, it was the three of us did this study. Um, we did it between uh, sort of early 2018 and, and mid 2019. We gathered data. <clears throat> um, it was initially intended to be a study of uh, the work of medical professionals in a variety of combat sports, so boxing, kickboxing, and mixed martial arts. As it happened, uh, and as you know, qualitative studies often evolve. Uh, once they start, they take on a bit of a life of their own. Um, we tended to get a lot more access to mixed martial arts events and a lot more enthusiasm from people who worked in mixed martial arts. So the study kind of naturally evolved to be uh, more about MMA than others, but yet we still managed to get some data from uh, boxing and kickboxing shows, uh, as well as Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, competitions, went to a couple of those. Um, and the study was basically intended to find, uh, or to find out what it's like to be a medical professional working in this context where um, athletes are you know, willfully putting themselves at risk, uh, taking significant risks with their physical health uh, in order to you know, enjoy competition and so on. Um, and you're the person, you're the doctor or the nurse or the paramedic, the EMT, whoever it is, you're the person who's charged with keeping them safe um, and picking up the pieces when they do get hurt. Um, so what is it like to do this work? Uh, how easy is it? How difficult? Um, what kind of things enable the work? What kind of things constrain it? So that's what we set out to find. Um, there's been quite a lot of research on sports medicine that's, that's taken a, you know, a social science perspective to look at the work of, of sports medics. Um, generally, the findings in this field suggest that um, it's difficult for medical professionals to work in sport, more difficult than in their, their normal clinical environments, mostly because um, the things that they want to say are not the things that athletes want to hear. For instance, um, I don't think you should fight today because your blood pressure is too high or, you know, you, you've been concussed. This fight is over. So usually the, the things that doctors um, and other medical staff uh, would prefer to do are things that athletes don't necessarily um, want to hear. Um, and that you know, there are lots of other things to consider as well. But that as a sort of a starting point, um, yeah, it made us very interested in, you know, how do how do medical professionals work in these kinds of environments? And and I think it's a little bit controversial. Usually they are working in healthcare, taking care of health, and then this event which kind of <laughs> always results in some kind of small, small or bigger injuries. So did they did they find it controversial to be or are they kind of selected just certain persons to be in this kind of events? So the, the people that we spoke to and um, and shadowed, so I should say a bit more about the study, actually. Yes, we, we went to uh, fight events and we sat with the medical teams um, as often as we could. Sometimes we weren't able to, but most of the time we were able to sit with them throughout the event, talk to them, watch them work, 
Um, and then we interviewed them as well uh, later on. So we got quite a lot of, you know, quite close to the action and, and had a good, um, you know, good chance to, to learn all about what they do. Um, most of the time, they're not, they're not selected to do the work. They're, they're hired on a, on a fairly ad hoc basis. So some of the people that we knew worked regularly in, uh, in combat sports and they worked in other sports as well. And they would often be, uh, they'd find work by reputation or by word of mouth uh, or, oh, no, I've, I've worked this guy's show before, so he'll hire me again kind of thing. So there were some kind of relationships in the field, but they were quite informal and there wasn't a governing body that says, okay, you're the doctor who will do this show. You're the, you're the, um, the nurse who will work at that show. It didn't really work like that. In, uh, in the regulated sports, so particularly in amateur boxing, there was a bit more control. So doctors had to be part of an approved um, committee that would, would work in boxing shows. And in, in the higher level mixed martial arts, the professional mixed martial arts shows in the UK, there's a group called um, Safe MMA, who are an advisory group, medical advisory group, um, who, who sort of help with that regulation as well, but they weren't regulating as such. So... If, if I'm a promoter and I don't want my show to be part of Safe MMA's remit, then I don't have to, and I can hire whoever I like. So actually the way that they um, they were um, securing their work was very informal, and that led to a quite a diverse range of people. So there were some doctors who worked at shows. There were some shows that only had uh, paramedics and some shows that had um, medical technicians, so people who are, who are less qualified than paramedics. Um, ambulance drivers, basically, ambulance technicians. Um, so yeah, there was a big diversity there. And of course, that then translated into quite a diverse range of practices as well, because there's certain things that, you know, the EMTs just can't do, um, certain things that, that doctors aren't comfortable with doing, and they would want to transfer to hospital and a really mixed bag of what actually happens on the ground at any one show, given that there wasn't any regulation to, um, you yeah, know, to work to. Uh, as to your question, though, sorry, I'm taking the long way around. Don't worry. Um, so, yeah, the question was, um, do they find it controversial? Most of them, no. Most of them really enjoyed combat sports. And the reason they worked there was because they liked it. You know, they wanted to be part of the part of the scene. They Some of them boxed themselves or had done MMA or they had some kind of either personal connection as, a, as an athlete or a former athlete or they just enjoyed it. Um, they liked being part of the scene. So they didn't find it controversial and they would often kind of I asked them about this and they, they often experience this from their colleagues in hospitals. Like, oh, I can't believe that you, you know, that you go to this, this thing. How can you, how can you do that? And that they would often then try and convince their colleagues, actually, this isn't as bad as you think. It's, you know, it's controlled. There are rules. I'm making it safe and so on. So, yeah, they were generally very positive about combat sports. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be great help for us we have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes so be sure to tune in thank you all for your support and have a great day